Let me read you, just to get us going in this session, what I would call an essential element of Discipleship 101 for new believers, because in Acts 14, Paul has just recently planted churches in Lystra and Derby and Iconium, and now he's going back, and he's going to stabilize them. What will he say? They've been Christians a few weeks, months at the most. And in verse 22, well, let's start at 21 in Acts 14. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. That's the only thing he mentions in the discipleship program. <laughs> Is it in yours, okay? For your kids, for yourself, for any person you're talking to, how to help them. He's encouraging them to continue and stay Christian and hold on to Jesus. Why? Because it's going to be trouble. It's going to be difficult. Christianity is not a pathway out of difficulty. It's a pathway into difficulty. So we don't preach the prosperity gospel here. We preach the opposite. If you want your life to go well, stay away from Jesus. Of course, it will only go well for you know, a few decades, and then there's eternal misery. But if you want your life to go well for eternity and have trials here more, then, then turn to, to Jesus. And he will both... Bring the trials, and he will give you the grace to do what needs to be done. Okay, we have in our session this morning three units that we need to get through. At least I would love to get through. Um, I, I don't think I've ever succeeded in getting through in these seminars. I don't think I've, maybe one time in the last 15 years I've finished a seminar. But I would really like to try again. Meaning that all the things that are in your book, I'd like to get through. That means uh, we'll do a session, a unit, about an hour or a little less maybe, on um, the final removal of Satan and God's general sovereignty over all things and what's the meaning of global suffering. Those, those three we'll try to do in a unit and then we'll try to do... Uh, the necessity, nature, and purposes of suffering and how you can endure. And then I'd like to spend the whole last hour on how do you minister to people? Because that's the one I almost never get to, and that's why I named the course what I did. So um, as important, probably, for you to learn how to deal with your own miseries is how you help others deal with theirs, okay? So that's the plan. And... Uh, Either after the first or the second one of those, we will take a, a 10-minute break or so. So you will get a chance to stand up and go where you need to go. Okay. Big question left over, I think, after last time. If God is sovereign over Satan in all those 10 ways that we looked, why in the world doesn't he remove him altogether? So we're just, 
what I think I'm going to do is, instead of reading this, it's about three pages, it's, I'm going to just talk, just put in my words for about three or four minutes and see if I can help you understand it. And those of you who have booklets, you see it there. These texts are simply here to show that God will, in the end, uh, throw Satan into the lake of fire. And therefore, he has the right to do that. And Satan has no uh, arm-twisting power to say to God, you can't do it yet, you can't do it yet. He, can, he has no power over God. God could do it today if he wanted to. So there must be a reason why he, he's going to throw him into the lake of fire later and not earlier. That's what I'm trying to figure out. Now, here's my basic answer. And it's, it's just a, a reflection on all of Scripture. I can't point to one text and say, there, it says that right there. Um, since he... he wants to magnify his power and his grace and his glory and all of his attributes. God wants to magnify all of his attributes in the world. That's clear from dozens of texts in the Bible. Um, how does that help us answer the question? And I think it does. If God today moved into the world with raw power and simply took all the demons and Satan and threw them by force into the lake of fire and let them no more tempt you or bother you at all, clearly his power would be wonderfully magnified. At least I would praise his power very much. Praise your sovereign power. You command, they left. They're gone. God is powerful. So he doesn't do that even though he loves to magnify his power. So something else about God must be at stake that would be magnified more if he leaves him to bother us, tempt us, assault us, kill us, persecute us, give us diseases, etc. All the stuff we saw in the last two sessions. And I think what the main design is, is this. What God wants to glorify most in the world is the glory or the beauty or the magnificence of his superior worth. Worship means you ascribe to God superior worth, meaning superior to money, superior to reputation, superior to family, superior to health and life. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. Psalm 63, verse 3. Well, now how can that be manifest in the world for God's people to show that God is more precious than all of those things? And one way is that Satan is allowed to continually take them away. Make us sick, so he takes away our health. Kill somebody, so he takes away a loved one. Um, messes up the economy, so you lose your job. Just a hundred things Satan is doing to make life hard, as well as make it easy. He's got two strategies, remember. He can use pleasure, he can use pain. And I'm saying God lets Satan run rampant in the world so that we won't just glorify God for his raw power to get rid of him, but we will at every moment 
where we make a moral choice to prefer God over what Satan just took away from us, Satan is frustrated and God is magnified. So if he takes your health and you still love God, Satan goes, that didn't work. He takes your job and you still love God, Satan goes, that didn't work. At each of those points, you are defeating Satan and magnifying the worth of God. And evidently, this is my, my answer, evidently God regards that battle and the thousands of little choices that Christians make on the basis of the superior worth of God over what Satan just wrecked is a greater glory to him than if he just dispensed with Satan immediately. That's my answer. If it's not an adequate answer, I don't have another one. And, and you can help me maybe and send me a note that uh, offers a better one. We're just... What, what, what Christians do who have come to trust Jesus and his word, is we just take what we're dealt and we try to figure it out. We don't dictate what we're dealt, we just take it. And we're dealt Satan. He's here. And the Bible says he's real and he's doing all these things and we are dealt the word that he could be taken out. And he will be taken out. And he isn't being taken out now. So there must be something about God that will be magnified by leaving him here. And it isn't mainly God's power. It's mainly God's superior worth that is being magnified. And God puts more stock for now in magnifying that part of his worth, his superior beauty over what you lose when Satan batters you. He puts that as a higher premium over just the display of his raw power. You want to ask a, you want to ask a question about that? Okay, save it for later. We'll do, we'll do questions um, between sessions. I said to uh, one of you last night that we would take a few minutes and simply talk about God's general sovereignty over all things. So these are those few minutes. This booklet, pages 23 to 25. Ephesians 1.11 We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. All things. Skip Daniel. Isaiah 46 Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So God, in some sense, is willing everything. Lamentations 3. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Amos 3.6 If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the Lord tremble? If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? He expects the answer... Yes. 
Genesis 50, 20, as for you, you meant it for evil against me, you brothers who sold Joseph into slavery, but God meant it for good. And the key there are these two words right here. You meant, God meant. It doesn't say God used. There's nothing false about that. But this says a different thing, and it's a more radical thing, a more controversial thing. A lot of people say, Satan messes up the world, God fixes it. He, God's always just a few steps behind, just using stuff, using bad. Okay. That's not the picture here. The picture here is that there are two intentions in this act. This evil you meant when you sold the people, you, when you sold Joseph into slavery, you meant evil. And when you sold Joseph into slavery, God meant something by it. He didn't just use it. He meant something. He had a different design in it. So you don't have this. You have this. God is on this thing, designing it differently than, than Satan is designing it or the brothers are designing it. And I think the story of Joseph in the Old Testament is one of the most important, practical, pastoral stories in the world. To, to be familiar with those few chapters in Genesis is to have a, a way of looking at the world that is unbelievably important for your life. Because if I do my math right, I, I think it was about 13 years between the time that he was sold into slavery and when he was finally invested into his office. Now, those 13 years, his life, if you graph it, was like this. He, th he thinks things are going to go well with Potiphar's house, and they go badly. He thinks they're going to go well in the prison, and he gets forgotten two more years. It just goes down, down, down. And when he's at his forgotten worst... The solution to the last 13 years is given him. I'm in it to save your family. That's what I've been doing. I've been saving the family. I've been saving the Messiah. I've been doing things you never dreamed. And some of you are six years into that, 10 years into that. There's no limit to 13. But to have, for me anyway, to have that paradigm. We, we, I've been at this church long enough to, to, know, to know how to graph things now. I'm not nearly as... I don't get depressed nearly as easily as I did when I was 40. Because I've just seen us go through some really lean seasons as a church. God helped us weather them. We came out. There was no growth for four years from 1993 to 97. We didn't grow. We, we just agonized over stuff you don't need to know about. And, and, uh, and, then, and then God came and he said, okay, I'm done disciplining you. I, I'm done and we're, we're going to go some places. So if, you know, I look at the finances and I say, okay, if they don't come in at the end of this year or if they don't come in for the next three years, they'll come in again someday. You know, it's just, they're, 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 life is like that. You just, you need to graph your life. And, and the main thing is, suppose you graph it like this and then you die. Glory forever. There's no, no guarantee that everybody's story turns out like Job's, you know, or Joseph's. John the Baptist sure didn't. Faithful, criticism, faithful, prison, faithful, head chopped off. End of life story. Greatest man that ever was, Jesus said.
greatest man born of woman. And everyone in the kingdom is greater than he. <laughs> he was just one of those. Just... So that's important to see that this text right there, which is the climax of the story of Joseph, is to teach us a way to look at life. Proverbs 16.9, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 20, man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How can a man understand his way? Jeremiah 10.23, I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself, nor is it in man who walks to direct his steps. Proverbs 16.33, this is probably the most radical of all. Talk about Reno, Las Vegas. The lot, let's say dice, are cast in the lap, whatever they, that table is where they throw them. <laughs> I'm not a gambler. The, the dice is thrown on the table. It's every decision is from the Lord. So the brother asked me last night, so you're saying this is all from the Lord? This is all planned? This is all ordained? And I'm saying, yep, that's what, that's what I believe, I, I believe every little gesture I make up here is designed from eternity. I'm sure not controlling it. I don't think anything is meaningless, even though some things look your whole life long meaningless. John the Baptist's death looks meaningless to me. A girl dances in a party, and her mom whispers, asks for the head of John the Baptist. And John's head gets chopped off because of the whim of a dancing girl and a wimpy king. And you just say, no, no, you can't end the best life like that. That's absurd. That's meaningless. You can go anywhere. So you will, you will experience things that look absolutely meaningless. But if this is true, that every... Roll every lot being cast, every roll of the dice. You've heard me say this before if you've been around for a while. My wife and I, if you, our default game together is Scrabble. You know how Scrabble works. Um, you put your hand in the bag and you pull out seven letters or three or two or whatever. You just lay down. And what you pull out makes all the difference, right? If you get a Q without a U, you're cooked. Especially it's the last turn, right? Um, so do you pray when you put your hand in the back? How can you not pray? God controls what you pull out. Well, here's the problem. Is it, God's, is it good for your family that you win? Maybe not. So what do you pray? Give me bad letters? Or do you not pray? I mean, how can you not pray? I mean, I'm going to pray without ceasing. I'm putting my hand in the bag. You decide what I pull out. How can I not pray? So you, you know my prayer. I say, for the kingdom and for the family. <laughs> you decide. If I need to lose, let me lose. If she needs, you know, some encouragement today, let her win. 
She always, she, she wins most of the time. My wife is brilliant in, with words. Okay. Little teeny applications of this text. There are more important ones. Many plans are in the heart, a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. Hmm. Let's just go to this one and end, end this section with this. Lamentations 3. If he causes grief, if God causes grief, he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness because he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. I remember the first time I read that. I thought, wow. Okay, he's causing grief. And he will mingle that hard, severe mercy, as Sheldon Van Auken called it. Probably no book made me cry more than that book, Severe Mercy. Then he he will have compassion. He'll, He'll mingle that grief that he's causing with compassion He's very loving, kind. He's very kind and loving, and, and these, this doesn't feel like it, but he is. We need to know that from the Bible. And then he gives this explanatory word, which is so baffling. Because he doesn't afflict, that is, he's not doing this, is causing grief. And then the English says willingly. Like, whoa, God is being forced? Like, I don't want to do this. Somebody's making me do it. What is that? What does willingly mean? So I got my Hebrew out. This is not, those of you who've had some Hebrew can see this. This is not a hard word. This is actually three words, believe it or not. That's a little from, min. There's leave, heart. And there's o, his. Everybody can see that who's had Hebrew for 10 weeks. Milevo. Literally, very simple, straightforward, from his heart. So now, now you know as much, you know as much about it as Hebrew, Hebrew scholars do. Now what does it mean? He doesn't afflict us from his heart. He does afflict us. He ordains that grievous things come into our lives, but he doesn't afflict us from his heart. I, th- I think it means something like um, God has levels of willing, levels of uh, exuberance in his heart, in his mind, in his soul. We're over our heads here, I know. God is infinitely complex, and to make statements like this are to babble like a baby, but that's what we're stuck with, language. And... I think many other places in the Bible indicate that God does things, that is, he wills things in one sense that he doesn't will in another sense. He says, for example, thou shalt not commit murder. And then he ordains the murder of his son. Okay, that's what I mean. That sort of thing turns up all over the Bible. Here, God causes grief but he doesn't do it from his heart. So these levels of willing, the pain that Jesus was caused in his death 
was not in and of itself a delight to God. What God was willing there is justice and mercy and and all the good things that were coming to you through the cross. And there are reasons for why he does this. And it, your pain, that at the moment of your pain, God is not, not oh, I'd love to see people hurt. I mean, that is the way a lot of people would construe what I'm teaching you in this seminar. They'd say that's the only way you can conceive God who ordains pain. Is he's, he's really wicked. He just loves to see people hurt. And this is saying, no, that's not the way it is with God any more than it is with a parent who spanks a child and sends him to his room for a season of misery for his good. I mean, a good parent knows how to balance these things. He doesn't, he doesn't harm his children. He doesn't slap them around and treat them in anger. But he knows this little padded spot right here is designed for spank- spankings. And a child is relieved when he is brought to tears for a crime rather than doing some kind of horrible psychological manipulation to make the child miserable for days. I mean, I'm getting into my little parent spiel here. We don't love to see our children cry. No parent loves to see his children cry. But we bring them to tears intentionally. So that's just an analogy of from our heart we're not causing pain. We're doing something for their good. And we'll see in the units to come what that is. So that's the end of the section on the total, complete sovereignty of God choosing a dozen texts or so to broaden out the big picture of God's sovereignty and not just over Satan. Now, what is the meaning of global suffering? Can we even say it? Is that a presumptuous question to ask? Does it have meaning or is it just absurd? Well, I think the Bible does give us a couple of really significant answers to this question. So let's look at them. First answer I want to suggest is this. It is in part God's judgment on the world for its sinfulness. As such, it is a vivid portrayal in the physical world of the moral and spiritual horror of God belittling sin. So that's my big answer first. That the meaning of pain in the physical realm is the horror of sin in the moral realm. That's the meaning of it. Physical misery is a parable of moral viciousness. Now let me say quickly what I'm not saying. I am not saying every given individual that deals with a misery, there is a corresponding moral viciousness in their life. That is absolutely not what I'm saying. Jesus had no moral viciousness in his life, and he suffered more than anybody. 
And Job, his three comforting friends, tried to say to him, the reason you're suffering so long and so deeply is because you must have sinned so grievously. And God got very mad at them for saying that. So I'm not saying that every misery has a specific, in your life, counterpoint of sin and viciousness. What I'm saying is, in the big scope of why there is this horror in the world, it corresponds to the horror of sin in the world. So let's look and see where I'm getting that. The first way to think about it is that Romans 1 pictures miseries, certain miseries, as the effect of sin and people being handed over to their sin. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. So God's wrath is coming against unrighteousness and ungodliness who suppress the truth. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And from that come untold miseries. God giving people over aids started in sin. You have to be so careful here, don't we? Because it's no longer simply, you got AIDS? You've been fooling around homosexually. That, that's clearly not the case anymore. But this word right here, so that their bodies would be dishonored, Therefore, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity. And he's talking about homosexuality here, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them and they would, they would bear in their own flesh the penalty. Uh, it's a pretty amazing parallel to AIDS. And, and now the story is told over and over again in history that one person's misery or one family's misery or one society's misery becomes everybody's misery. So last night, instead of saying, I hope some of you give your life to eliminating malaria, I will also say, I hope some of you give your life to eliminating AIDS. I would be very happy if a vaccine were found that would just wipe it out. Even though it might free up some people to do more illegitimate, God-displeasing sex. I, don't, I'm, I just don't think we should think in terms of the other way around. Let the, say, let, let, let the evil go and kill millions of babies and people and innocent wives whose husbands are sleeping around on them. And, um, no, we would love to see that turned around. My, my point is here, what's the meaning of all that? And one of the meanings is God gave them over. So, I think I said in something I wrote on the internet a few days ago, 
some, oh no, I said it in the video. Um, some people say that if we continue on in abortion or if we continue on with homosexual people pretending like they're married, God's going to judge us. Well, no, he's not. That is the judgment. God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. That is the outpouring of God's wrath. The wrath of God is being revealed in the giving people over to do abortions and to do all manner of evil. Here's a second way to look at it. Death. Death is the great enemy, last enemy to be overcome is death. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, death through sin, death through sin. So what's the meaning of death? The meaning of death is sin. Death is a physical statement of the horrors of sin. If you look at death and see it and you hate it, that's good. Make sure your hate terminates on the right thing. Through it to its cause. Through it to its cause. Its cause is sin. The meaning of the fact that everybody dies is sin entered into the world. So if you get angry at death, why is there so much death? Why do babies die and 15-year-olds die and 45-year-olds die and 65-year-olds die? Why is there so much death? Your, your anger should be channeled here to through one man's sin entered the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. By the transgression of the one, many died. By the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. Through the transgression, there resulted condemnation for all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, even through one man's obedience, the one, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. He's paralleling Adam and Christ and condemnation and justification. And just as in Adam all die, so in Christ, everyone who's in Christ will be made alive because of his righteousness, just like these people all died because of his wickedness. That's the doctrine of original sin. But the general point here is this. What's the meaning of the carnage of death in the world? I had a teacher one time who said history is a conveyor belt of corpses. And it is. Everybody dies. If you want a sobering experience, just every day when you read the paper, or I don't even know, I've never looked at it online, but we still get the paper paper, uh, turn to the obituary page, especially on the weekends. On the weekend, the obituaries go for three pages sometimes. And then look at their pictures. They're young, they're old. They're women and men, they're children and adults, they're every race, everybody is dying. And you just realize if your life is comfortable for a moment, there's about 80 people on these three pages who right now have a network of people who are in absolute 
grief. And it's every single day. And this is just one city. What is the meaning of that? The meaning is sin is outrageous. See that, David? I'm saying physical death. That's what I'm talking about now. Spiritual death is sin. I mean, sin and spiritual death are almost synonymous. The question was, am I talking here about physical death or spiritual death? I'm talking about physical death here because that's what Paul is talking about here. Why do people die physically? People die physically because sin came into the world. Let's read it again. Just as through one man, sin entered the world. That's Adam. One man, sin entered the world and death through sin. That statement right there is just hugely worldview shaping. Because that means you will now not see death as absurd and without any meaning or root. It's got a root. It's got a meaning. What should it say to us? It should say to us, if you don't like it, don't like sin. It's so sad that people don't get the message here. People, in fact, turn it right on its head. They say, tomorrow we die. Let's eat, drink, and be merry. They multiply sins. Because they see death. And the Bible wants to say, no, let death direct you towards holiness because sin brought death. One more way to look at it. This is perhaps the most important. This, this text right here is, I think, this Romans 8, 18 to 23, is probably the most important passage in the Bible for coming to terms in a church with disease and disability. When I came to Bethlehem 28 years ago, I can't remember the exact timing, but within the first, say, two months, I think, I preached a sermon called Christ and Cancer. Now, why would a young 34-year-old pastor put at the front of his agenda... Uh, to say to the several hundred folks who were there what he believes about Christ and cancer. And the reason was very simple. 90% of the people in our church were, were, were old. I came to a church that was dying and that was filled with old people, very gracious old people to us young people. They, they were wonderful to us. And uh, this church exists and survives and thrives because of how sweet and helpful they were. So I wanted to honor them. I, I did a funeral every three weeks for a year and a half. You talk about baptism by fire. I'd, ne- I'd never done a funeral in my life when I came to this church. And I started doing them just like this. Every three weeks for 18 months. And it bonded me to these old people unbelievably because they all came to the funerals. They'd show up at every funeral because they knew theirs would be next. Um, what point was I making? Oh, why did I do Christ and cancer? Because as I looked out on them, I wanted them to know what I would think when I came to the hospital bed. I didn't want them to think the pastor's going to say, I wouldn't be here if I were a real believer. I could get healed if I really believed. And so he's going to think my faith is weak because I'm in the hospital. And I just wanted to kill that thing. I wanted to kill that thing so that they could 
want me to come, expect that I would say something more biblical and more faith-building than, oh, you're sick? You must not be trusting Jesus because if you have faith, you can move mountains like this cancer. This text right here is the key text on that issue, so let's read it carefully. This gives an interpretation to the meaning of Christian suffering. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So the first thing he does is just make sure that we get our proportions right. We may suffer in this present time, that is, our whole lives, a lot or a little, and if it's a lot, it's not worthy to be compared to what's coming. We need a good, healthy dose in America of heavenly-mindedness. Heavenly-mindedness in its biblical function and proportion doesn't make you an irrelevant, pie-in-the-sky recluse. It makes you a radical risk-taker who can lay down your life and know it's worth it. At least it should. For the anxious, let's see where to stop, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. So he pictures uh, creation as having this longing for the revelation of the sons of God. What does that mean, revelation of the sons of God? It means this. As I look out on you right now, I'm assuming most of you are Christians, believers, born again. You don't look like sons of God. You look like ordinary mortals who are going to die someday. A son of God, you know, a son of God be about a thousand feet tall and long flowing robes and a face shining like the sun and arms that can throw Pluto and come on, the son of God is magnificent and you don't look magnificent at all. You look like everybody else. We haven't been revealed. We're walking, we're walking down Nicollet Mall and look like everybody else. Nobody knows you're a child of God. Just walk by him on the street, they will someday. It says in Matthew thirteen forty four, in the little parable, it says, You will shine like the sun in the kingdom of your father. You can't look at the sun without going blind. Remember what C.S. Lewis said? He said, you never met an ordinary mortal. Someday, very soon, that person will either be a devil that you'll shrink back from or a child of God that you will want to bow down and worship. You've never met an ordinary human being. There aren't any. We just haven't been revealed yet as to what we are. So the whole creation is waiting. When's it going to happen? Oh, bring it, bring it, bring it. For the creation was, now here's the reason it hasn't, here's the situation we're in. For the creation was subjected to futility. Now that is like through sin came death. Creation was subjected to futility. Whoa, whoa, who did that? And what is that? That means 
you look out across the entire globe, everywhere, the most successful, the most beautiful things are shot through with futility. Picture your favorite hotel, or picture your favorite car, or picture your favorite whatever. Give it enough time, it's going to break. It's going to rust. It's going to get roaches in it. It's going to run off a cliff. It's going to... Things break. Things rust. Things get old. We get old. This is the biggest model of futility right here. 62 years old. Losing my hair. Glasses. Needed more. My wife tells I need a hearing aid. I don't think I need a hearing aid. Why can't you hear when I talk? I mean, or why can't you talk louder? Yeah, that's it. You don't talk loud enough. And... And on and on, this, this, this body is wasting away. What's all that? That's futility. Missionaries know this more than anybody. Everything breaks. Nothing works. It's the futility. And, and it's intentional. Somebody did this. Who did it? Well, it says, the creation was subjected to futility not willingly. Okay, creation didn't say, make me futile. But because of him, it's got a capital H. I think that's right, but it's not in the original. Because of him who subjected it. Now, how do we know that's God? Right there. Satan is the only other candidate. And he didn't do it in hope. You might say Adam is a candidate. He didn't do it in hope either. Only one person subjected this creation to futility in hope. Hope that the creation itself would be set free from its slavery to corruption. Who can do that? God can do that. He's going to do that. The creation will be set free from its slavery to corruption, bondage to corruption. That's another way of saying futility, bondage to corruption, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Finally, we're going to be revealed. Our glory will be revealed. Behold what manner of love the Father has shown to you that you should be called the children of God. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. The day is coming when these ordinary Christians who are little children of God are going to stand face to face with Jesus and that is going to result in an immediate transformation into the likeness of Jesus. And just like he has a resurrection body, we'll have resurrection bodies and we will glow with his glory. That's coming. And until then, this. Futility and slavery to corruption. Now, it gets even more pointed for us Christians. For we know that the whole creation groans. So now you've got futility, slavery to corruption, and now the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth. Now that's an analogy to what? An analogy to the fact that when you look around the world and you see tsunamis and earthquakes and pandemics, you should say birth pangs. What does that mean? It means a baby's about to be born. What baby? 
the new heavens and the new earth with Christians shining like the sun in the kingdom of their father. The meaning, the meaning of this futility, the meaning of these upheavals, the meaning of this groaning is Paul sees them like somebody subjected it to this in hope, in hope of a baby being born, namely the new heavens and the new earth. Now, not only this, but we also, also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit. So there's Christians, not who have little faith, but who are Spirit-filled. We ourselves, who have the Holy Spirit, even we, notice how he's emphasizing this, because they just couldn't believe it. I mean, some of the Christians were saying, if you're a Christian, you get well. If you're a Christian, you get well. If you're a Christian, you don't get sick. So he's having to say, we also, ourselves also, even we who have the Spirit also grown within ourselves, waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. That is really important. It's off the sheet, sorry. That's really important. Because it teaches us that Christians who have the Holy Spirit, which means they are God's children, pleasing to the Father in Jesus Christ, are swept into the miseries, swept into the futility, swept into the groaning. You will die just like everybody else. You will get cancer just like everybody else. You will struggle in your marriages just like everybody else. You will experience the aging process just like everybody else. Christians are not separated. Verse 23, just get it. We, ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we, ourselves, groan. This is not a praise God anyhow. I'm always above the fray. Groan within ourselves, waiting for our what? Our, the completion of our adoption. We're already adopted in legally, but we're not coming into the full possession of our inheritance yet, the redemption of our bodies. It says in Philippians 3, uh, 20, 21, that someday we will exchange, God will transform, Jesus will transform this lowly body into a body like his glorious body. And the translation is um, body of lowliness, soma tapenoseos. The reason I'm just saying that is because of how moved I was in reading the biography of Julius Schneeveen, a New Testament scholar in Germany, about 30 years ago when I read it. He died of pneumonia after a long, cold German unheated train ride back during the Second World War. And as he came home and he opened the door and walked in, knew, knew, knew he was very sick, said to his wife, Soma tapi saf, tapi nafrasune. Soma tapi nafrasune. Quoting Philippians 3, 20 and 21. 
I'm going to lay this down. This body, this lowly body is going to get an exchange for another body. That's what he's talking about right here. The redemption of our, our bodies. We have good news for disabled people. Really good news. And good news for diseased people and good news for dying people. I'll tell you a few, this may sound strange. If, if I had my choice at Bethlehem to do a funeral or a wedding, I'd do a funeral in a minute. Way more. Why? Well, there is so much natural joy sustaining the, the people at a wedding. They don't need me. I, they just legally need me, you know. But at a funeral, they need me really bad because I got news and it's so good. The wedding, they're going to have sex tonight. Well, what else do we need, you know? Been waiting for this, I hope, you know, forever. And this is, oh, every, everybody's dressed up. And, but a funeral, to preach the gospel at a wedding is a huge challenge. You know, to say the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. You kind of look around saying, really? <laughs> this is pretty good right now. That's the problem. But at a funeral, everybody's needy. And so, we have really good news. Um, all of that groaning is mingled with many mercies. I've got texts on that. I'm not going to read them. Here's my conclusion from that first answer to the question about the meaning of global suffering. A world of horrendous suffering should not cause us to think of God as a horrendous God, but on the magnitude, but of the magnitude and depth of the ugliness and heinousness of God belittling pride and unbelief and indifference and scorn, this is what hell will mean for all eternity, a witness to the heinousness of God's demeaning, God demeaning pride. In other words, every time you see cancer, every time you see some horrible malformation or, or some terrible, grotesque face or a baby born with one head here and one head here. I keep pictures like this on my, in, my, in my computer. You, you, you would think, I'm, I'm sick. I'm a sicko. Because when I see things turn up on the Internet of horrendous things, I've got a picture of a baby and here's her face and then she has another head here with another face upside down and a little body with partly appendages and, and her mommy, I don't know how old she is, a few months old, her mommy down, stroking one of her faces. I just want to die. I just want to scream. I just, I just, I'm saying that so that you don't ever, ever, as a Christian, think you should put your head in the sand with regard to the suffering of this world. Stay awake. You have a way to see it now. You should see that and say, I hate sin. I hate my pride more than I hate anything. That's the way you should respond to that. I hate my selfishness towards my family. I hate the shortness of my temper. I hate my impatience. That's what you should feel when you see a, a disfigured face. Don't you get in God's face about this. There is another way to understand it. 
one more way of saying it. I'll say this and then we'll stop and take a little break. Global suffering is God's message of warning and awakening that the world should take seriously their desperate moral condition and repent. When you get a phone call from the news agency after a calamity and they want to know what you as a born-again evangelical Christian think the meaning of this is, this would be the first text you should go to, probably. You should say, can I just tell you a little story about Jesus? Now, on the occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate mixed with their sacrifices. So Pilate came into the temple and he saw some people offering some sacrifices and he slaughtered the people and mingled their blood with their sacrifices. And they came to Jesus and said, what does that mean? And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that all these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans? No, that wasn't the meaning. It's not their greater sin. I tell you, no. But unless you repent, unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Meaning, that death, that horror, that calamity, that gross, horrific event was to get you to repent. And that's why I said, you look, you look at a horror in the world, your main thought should be about your own sin. Verse 4, or do you suppose that those 18 people on whom the Tower of Siloam fell or the Twin Towers in New York fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the other men in Jerusalem or New York? I'll tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So I think we should say to the news reporter on the other end of the, on the, other end of the telephone, um, sir or ma'am, um, whatever else I say to you about the meaning of yesterday's calamity, its meaning for you, my friend, is that you repent and turn to Christ. That's the meaning. So don't, don't play games. Don't play little, little soundbite games. If they want to keep talking after that, keep talking. But get, get to it. Be Jesus-like. Jesus didn't get into a theory, did he? They came in and said, give us a theory of evil about the, the tower falling on 18 people just walking by. Just walking by. And Jesus said, it wasn't because they were worse sinners. It was to make plain the fact that it, you and I, well, you, I would say you and I, you and I should repent because we're all, we all deserve to be under the under the tower. One of the most moving sermons I ever heard was by R.C. Sproul, and it was entitled something like, The Misplaced Locus of Amazement. <laughs> kind of typical R.C. Sproul title. The Misplaced Locus of Amazement. And he took this text, Luke 13, and he said, these people were amazed that anybody had a tower fall on them when they were walking by. And Jesus said, no, no, no. That's a misplaced locus of amazement. You should be amazed you weren't under the tower. If you don't repent, you will be under the tower someday. You just got to say, that is what that text says. And that is the way we respond. We look at events and we say, why did this happen? And we should say, why didn't this happen to me?